Our practice at Redeemer typically is to preach through the Bible book by book, verse by verse. But we do take breaks from our sermon series when special circumstances call for it. Now, typically Easter is one of those special circumstances. There are few better opportunities you have to take a break from whatever sermon series you might be in in order to preach on and reflect and meditate on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, this morning we have an opportunity uh, to sort of kill two birds with one stone, if you will. Um, God has done this more times than once since I've been at this church. It's remarkable how often he does this. And we are going to be able to preach on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to have to leave our sermon series through Ephesians to do it. So the timing of uh, how we've been working through the book, I did not do this intentionally. It happened just by the grace of God. So would you please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 so that we can preach through our sermon series and preach on the resurrection of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 through 23. If you would turn there, and when you have gotten there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. <clears throat> Paul takes a really interesting route in this passage. Paul takes a very interesting route in this passage. Why do, what do I mean by that? Well, he begins with thank, expressing his thankfulness for the Christian community in Ephesus. He begins by expressing his gratitude for them, by reminding of them of how often he prays for them, and specifically what he prays for. So he begins with his gratitude for the church, and then somehow ends with a proclamation of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And this all happens relatively quickly, and in the English translations, it happens in one sentence. Right? One run-on sentence. He begins with how thankful he is for the churches, and he ends with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. What an interesting route. How did he get there? How did he get from, I'm so thankful for you, to Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, who rose from the dead? It's interesting for us to see, it's like, is this just some divinely inspired rabbit trail? Is, is Paul just kind of thinking crazy here and writing anything down? I think the best way for us to really unpack this text today is to reverse engineer it. We're going to reverse engineer the text. 
What does it mean to reverse engineer something? An, en an engineer takes parts and designs a way to put them together to build a whole unit. So Paul is like our engineer. He's taken all of these parts and he's put them together in this passage. What we're going to do is we're going to take the finished product and then break it down into its parts. Right? And that's how you can reverse engineer something. You take what's finished and you break it down and then you can actually learn, oh, I see what they did. I see how they put it together. As a matter of fact, I just, this is maybe a, hopefully not an inappropriate analogy to use, but this is Roswell after all. So the, the big theory, the big conspiracy theory about the UFO, about the alien UFO crash is that an, a UFO crash landed here and it was taken to this secret government facility because the technology is beyond us. We don't know how to make a UFO that can fly through space. And so the idea of what's happening in this secret facility is we're taking apart this finished UFO to try to learn how we could make one ourselves. Right? That's the conspiracy theory. Now, I don't believe that actually happened, but it's a, an example of what it means to reverse engineer something. So we are going to reverse engineer Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. We're going to begin with Paul's ending. We're going to begin with his climax. We're going to begin with this great crescendo that he leads us to. And then I think that'll help us sort of apply the pieces at the beginning to it. And what is Paul's climax? Well, in short, it's the resurrection and supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Let's see that again. Read with me verses 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Let's stop there. So in verse 19, Paul uses three different words to talk about God's power or his strength. And he even goes on to describe it as being, as having a greatness that is immeasurable. God's power is immeasurably great. The fancy theological word we have for this, it's a divine attribute of God known as omnipotence, meaning all-powerful. God has all power. In other words, if the greatness of God's power cannot be measured, what that means is that it's infinite. You can't, the only way you could not measure it is if it either didn't exist or if it was all existing. And we know it does not exist, right? So Paul is telling us God has immeasurable power. It is an infinite power. He is all powerful. There is nothing God cannot do. And so the question that you could ask is how do we know this? How has God proved the greatness of his power? How do I know that God isn't as powerful as me? How do I know he's so powerful? Well, throughout scripture, there's usually two classic examples. There are many examples. But there's usually two classic examples one could turn to to demonstrate how immeasurably powerful God is. And the first one was creation itself right? God managed to make galaxies and nebulas and planets and stars and gravity and time and atoms and electrons, and he did it with a word. He did it out of nothing. That's pretty powerful. That's kind of beyond our comprehension kind of power. But in the New Testament, we're presented with another display of God's incredible power. God does something that no one else can do, and Paul appeals to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do you know Paul, or forgive me, how do you know God is so powerful? Because he raised Jesus from the dead. He brought back someone who was dead. I'd like to see you do that. 
I'd like to see our modern medical science resurrect a dead person after three days. This is beyond comprehension. This is beyond earthly power. And God demonstrates his immeasurably great power. The same power that is working in us is vindicated or proved because it is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's the same power that then ascended him to heaven. God took Jesus from death back to earth and from earth up to heaven. That's pretty powerful. He ascended Jesus, as the text says, into the heavenly places at God's right hand. It's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and gave him authority. But then Paul makes another quick transition. What about this authority? What kind of authority does Jesus have? Right? Because he is seated at the right hand of God, which is a metaphor for authority. If a king seats someone at his right hand, becomes his right hand man, then that person is claiming to have a, a power through the king or an authority through the king. In other words, Paul tells us that God rules through Jesus. Jesus is the person through whom God rules. Jesus is at God's right hand. And so how much authority does Jesus have? What kind of authority does Jesus have? Paul elaborates on that in verses 21 through 23. He has been seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, which is, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ's authority is universal. It's over everything. The first thing Paul tells us is that it's above angels and demons. Now, I know the text didn't use those words, but all throughout the New Testament, this phrase that Paul uses in verse 21, rule, authority, power, and dominion, whenever it's used in the New Testament, it's always used to refer to the heavenly realms, the spiritual realms where angels and demons exist. So the first thing Paul tells us about the resurrected and ascended Christ's rule is that he is above angels and demons. Angels are not as glorious as Christ. Angels do not have more power or more authority than Christ. Christ rules over angels and demons. They submit to him. They come to him for obedience and permission to do anything. They are under his feet. Christ is king of the angels. He is Lord of the demons. That's high authority. But we could, you know, logic would tell us that if he's above the angels and the demons, then certainly he's above us. But thankfully, we don't actually have to use logical deduction here because we are included in this. Not only is Christ above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, but he is above, verse 21, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. So not just angels and demons does Christ have jurisdiction over. He has jurisdiction over you. Do you have a name? His name's above yours. Do you work for a corporation? His name's above it. Is your city ruled by a government? His name's above it. He is above Every name that is to be named. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. There is nothing in all of creation that does not answer to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Everything belongs to him. There is nothing you can look at or even conceive of in your mind that Jesus doesn't say, that's mine. That belongs to me. I own it all. This is why Christians love to refer to him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We have kings on earth. We have lords. We have presidents. We have bosses. We have rulers. We have authority. Christ is above it all. Everything answers and submits to Christ. And this exaltation was given to him because he was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. This is Paul's climax. This is what the whole sermon is about today. This is what all of Easter is about. The supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection and ascension and authority of Christ Jesus. But if you were to leave this room and someone were to ask you, what did you learn at Easter today? I wouldn't expect you to recite everything I've said up to this point. So how can we maybe summarize Paul's great crescendo? How can we maybe summarize it into a clean sort of main idea? What is it that this sermon is ultimately about today? And this is how I would summarize it. God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him all authority. What is Paul trying to teach us in this passage? He's trying to teach us this, that God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him all authority. This is what Paul leads to. He begins with prayers for the church, and this is what he's leading to. This is what he wants to eventually settle on, that God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. He wants to exalt the resurrection and supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he is the Lord of all creation. And so here's what this means. Now that we've sort of settled and established the main idea that God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him all authority, we can now take all of the other points at the beginning of the passage and sort of read them as applications. In other words, because God raised Jesus from the dead, everything else is from that foundation. Everything else that Paul talks about here stands and rests upon the truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We see now how the pieces all fit together to this main hub, which is Jesus's supremacy. And so I've broken it down into three primary applications. In other words, think about the rest of the sermon like this. Jesus rose from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, gave him all authority. So what? What does that mean for me? More specifically, how does Paul think that should affect my life? What does Paul think are the significant consequences of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? Now, this is not an exhaustive list. We could go through the whole New Testament and come up with many, many consequences of the resurrection of Christ. But Paul gives the Ephesians, and by extension us, Three things he wants them to do. He has three prayer requests over their life that all connect to the resurrection. So we, we then have three applications, if you will, of the resurrection of Jesus. Application number one, what should you do because Jesus rose from the dead? You should join the church. You should join the Christian church. Jesus rose from the dead... Therefore, you should join the church. And I mean this in two ways. When I talk about joining the church, I mean this in two ways. The first way you should join the church is what we call the church universal. You need to join the universal church. Look at verses 22 through 23. Remember, Paul did not have to write these last little details. He wrote them in here for a very important reason. 
He could have just ended it by saying, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things. Could have ended it there, but he doesn't. How does he end it? Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here, this is what we call the universal church. It's known in this text as the body of Christ. The risen and ascended Christ, who has all authority, has been given to the church. And then Paul, I mean, he tells us, here's another way to define the church. The body of Christ. And then he even goes on to say that the body of Christ fills him. He's the one who fills all things, but the church fills him. This is the universal church. The universal church includes every single person who is united to Christ by faith, both the living and the dead. Every single person, whether in heaven or on earth, who believes in Jesus Christ by faith is part of his church. They are, in other words, members of his body. This is why we call it universal Because it's not just Roswell. It's not just Redeemer Christian Fellowship. It's every Christian in every age all around the world. Everyone who believes in Jesus is part of the Christian church. They are part of the universal church. And Jesus in this text is said to be the head of the church in a very special and a unique way. Paul goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus has a relationship to the church that he does not share with anything else. Right? And this is important for us. Because if we were just to say, hey, Christ has authority over everything. Right? Santa Fe, Christ has authority there. Washington, D.C., Christ has authority there. North Korea, Christ is Lord. Your household, Christ is Lord. The place that you work, Christ is Lord. He has authority over everything, and that would include then the church. So what do we do? Do we just lump the church in with everything? Yeah, the state, the church, the household, the family, the corporations, the land, the universe. Yeah, oh, he's just head of all of it. You see the way the church just sort of gets thrown into the blender? Paul wants us to understand that, yes, Christ is head of the church because he's head of all things. But he has a relationship to the church he does not have to the state. He has a relationship to the church he doesn't have to families or to your place of work. Because it is only the church that he has been given to. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. The sovereign ruler whose head over everything has been given, not to the state, not to you specifically, but to the church. Jesus Christ has been given to us. And then it immediately tells us something else about the church that you can't say about the state, that you can't say about the universe, that you can't say about anything else, and that is the church is his body. So you see how, yes, Christ has lordship over all things, but he has a unique relationship to the church. He has been given to the church, and the church is his body on earth. And then it goes on to say that somehow, in some mysterious way, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In some way, shape, or form, Christ, who fills everything, is uniquely filled himself by the church. Christ fills us and we fill him. That's what Paul's saying. Because we are his body, we fill him and he fills us. 
Now that's kind of an awkward way of putting it. It doesn't come off the tongue very well, right? What exactly is Paul saying here? Well, Paul is addressing how because we are the body of Christ, we are his unique complement on earth. We complete and fulfill his mission and his purpose and his rule on earth. In other words, Christ rules through his body on earth, which is the church. He rules and governs not just over us, but in us and through us. And in that way, we are said to complete him or to fill him. One commentator said this, The writer's overall thought is that the church is Christ's fullness and that Christ is the one who is completely filling the cosmos. The church appears then to be the focus for and medium of Christ's presence and rule in the cosmos. The church is sort of at the center of Christ's government. We are his body on earth. And so here's what all this is coming to. Do you see how important the resurrection is to the church? How can the church be the body of Christ if his body is dead in a tomb? How can the church be the body of Christ if he doesn't have a body? If his body is rotting away, if it's a rotten corpse somewhere in Jerusalem right now, then what is the implication of that? There's no Christian church. There's none. But because he's resurrected and because he rules through the earth, the church can now be the medium, the means by which he rules. We are the body of Christ. So the resurrection, therefore church. You see how important the resurrection is to the Christian church. And additionally, do you see how important the church is to Christ? Christ has this unique relationship to all of his believers, which we sometimes call the mystical body of Christ. As a matter of fact, this is the ancient term. The way the, way the, the, the mystical body of Christ or the universal church, you know what we used to call that in the early centuries of Christendom? Catholic. The, we're, what we're talking about here is the Catholic church. Now the problem is that throughout the centuries, that term Catholic has become hijacked. And now when I say the word Catholic, you all think something that the word never originally meant. As a matter of fact, you actually think something that contradicts what the word originally meant. The word Catholic means universal. That's what it means. Yet when I say that person belongs to the Catholic church, what do we mean by that today? We mean that's a specific denomination that belongs only to Rome. Right? Roman Catholics are those who submit to the Roman bishop. So we're taking this word which means all over the world, and how are we defining it? Rome, Italy. Catholic doesn't mean Rome. It means everywhere. We are not talking about Pope Francis when we say Catholic. This is why we can affirm that creed that we affirmed right before church started. In the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, we put the words into your mouth. We believe in the one holy Catholic church. Don't let the Bishop of Rome take that word away from you. If you belong to Christ Jesus, you are part of his church Catholic. You are more Catholic than Francis. Jesus loves his Catholic church, his mystical body on earth, believers of every age in every place who have believed on the risen Lord by faith. He has been given to them and they are his body. They complete and fulfill him. Christ rose from the dead. What does that mean? You need to join the Catholic church. You got to come be part of the body of Christ. 
Easter Sunday compels you to believe in Jesus Christ by faith and become a member of his living body on earth. But we can't stop there. This is a long point. I'm sorry. But because in the Bible, the Catholic Church, the universal church, has a very special relationship to what we call the visible church or the local church. And when we talk about the visible or local church, we're talking about this right here, Redeemer Christian Fellowship. The local church, the visible church, is the manifestation on earth of the invisible church. It's a visible, tangible manifestation of what is invisible and universal. And I would simply submit to you that you cannot read through the New Testament and find anywhere that justifies being a member of the mystical body of Christ, but not a member of the visible body of Christ. It doesn't exist. Churchless church members don't exist in the New Testament. They're not there. If you are part of the mystical body, the scriptures compel you to join a visible body, a local body. So I am not just calling you to join the universal church by faith today. I'm calling you to find a Bible-believing church of local believers and become part of them. Join them. Join the church. I think this is even implied in our passage today. Look at verses 15 and 16. How does Paul begin? For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. In verse 15, Paul thanks, he praises God for these people, for what? Their love of Jesus Christ, entrance into the mystical church, and what? Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. There's two things Paul's looking for from you. There's two things that the resurrection tells you to do. Number one, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Number two, show love to his fellow saints. You can't do that outside of the local church. You can't do that in the mystical church. You have to join a local church in order to love and show love to the saints. Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, what? Believe in Jesus and go find yourself a church. You're welcome here. By the way, I just, before we move on, keep in mind also that the reason the Ephesians exists is because Paul planted churches there to send this letter to. We read in our introductory sermon, Paul didn't just go into Ephesus, preach the gospel, a bunch of people got saved and said, good, you got your ticket into heaven. You're part of the universal church. See you guys. He stayed there. Okay, you believe the gospel? Great. This is the beginning of something, not the end. This is not the end. This is the beginning. You believe the gospel? Great. And then what did he do? He labored there for three years, planted a church, established pastors, left, and then wrote a letter back to the churches. Do you think Paul thinks that it's okay for you to just believe in Jesus and never go to church? No. That's not the will of God for your life. And how do we know that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. So join a church. Second thing. Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, Paul wants you to grow in knowledge. He wants you to grow in knowledge. Paul prays for the Ephesians to have their minds illuminated by the spirit of wisdom and knowledge of God. He even speaks metaphorically of God opening up the eyes of their hearts. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So Paul's first prayer request for these people is that they would have their minds and their hearts enlightened, illuminated to the revelation of God. Paul wants them to learn more of what has been revealed. He's, by the way, he's not saying that I want you to get new revelation. He's not calling them to be prophets and apostles. He's saying what has already been revealed through the apostles. I want you to know more of it. I want you to understand it better. In other words, Paul's prayer request is that the Ephesians and us by extension would all become better theologians. And why do I say better theologians? The reason I say that is because there's this interesting, subtle, not a real contradiction, but a seeming contradiction in here, right? Because Paul begins by telling them, I'm so thankful for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he begins. So apparently their minds have already been opened, right? They already know who Jesus is. They already believe in Jesus. And then he takes these people who already believe in Jesus and he says, you know what I hope happens to you? You know what I pray? I pray God would open up the eyes of your heart and give you understanding and wisdom of the knowledge of him. I thought they already had that. I thought they were already believing in Jesus. No, so what is Paul obviously saying? Paul is saying the resurrection means it's not okay to barely be saved. Your goal in this life is not to just barely be saved. Paul wants you, yes, to have your, the eyes of your heart opened and follow Jesus and know Jesus and love Jesus. But then he prays for what? More knowledge, more revelation, more understanding. Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, we need to be constantly learning and having our hearts and minds opened to more and more of who God is. Now, let me remind you, though, that the way we have a relationship with God begins with our knowledge of God. You can't love the God you don't know. You can't love the God you know nothing about. We want to strengthen our relationship with God, and one of the means to that ends is through our heads first. The reason I say this is I don't want to present, because this is sometimes what happens with, with pastors, like nerds like me who just study theology all the time. People sometimes feel this pressure that I'm like telling you, like you need to be theology nerds just like me. But I want to emphasize here, Paul does not want Christians just to become these academic nerdy eggheads who just fill their heads with data so that they can show everyone how smart they are, right? Paul understands that the way we grow in our relationship with God is first by learning more of who he is. Theology is a means to an end. It's not an end in of itself. So I'm not just saying, hey, I want you guys to be a bunch of smart Christian apologists who know it all. So you need to study your Bibles more. We're saying, Paul's saying, I want you to love God more. And that begins with knowing him more. Paul is calling us, because Jesus rose from the dead, to a deep, satisfying relationship with God. And the only way we can get there is if we first learn of who he is. It is possible to know a lot of God in your head and not have him in your heart. That's possible. Uh, the best proof of that is in the book of James. We are told that demons have a pretty orthodox belief in God. Demons know that there's only one God. They know that. Demons know Jesus is Lord. They know that. Demons probably have pretty good theology. They probably know more than you do. 
But that's obviously not enough. So I want to recognize it's possible just to fill your head with theology and never transfer to your heart. But I, what I want to submit though is it's impossible for it to transfer to your heart if it doesn't start in your head. Right? Paul wants us, and that's why he uses this metaphor of open the eyes of my heart. He doesn't say open the eyes of your mind. Although he does want your minds to be illuminated, but he wants our hearts to be illuminated, which means we are not just receiving more data of God, but we're embracing it. We're believing in it and we're drawing closer to God through it. Paul wants us to know God more and more. And he knows the foundation of this is the resurrection. How does that work? How is the resurrection the foundation for knowledge of God? Well, here's how. Because all throughout this part of the passage, Paul talks about who is it? I'll put it in form of a question. Who is it that gains knowledge? Do you open up the eyes of your heart? Do you illuminate your mind? No, what does Paul say? Verse 16. Oh, that's verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. God is the one who has to give you this knowledge. God is the one opening up your heart. Now, this is not to say that God doesn't use means. Rather, he, he uses means to accomplish his purposes. What am I saying there? Paul is not insinuating that your job is just to sit on the couch and wait for God to take some metaphysical thumb drive and plug it into your brain and download information. All right, you, you still have to do the work. You have to study your Bible. You have to pray. You have to read theology books. You have to go to church. You have to put in the work to understand the Bible, to understand God. But what Paul is recognizing is a person could dedicate their whole life to study and reading and church, but if God doesn't give understanding, it will be of no avail. We do our end and God works through that. So you still have to put in the work. I'm not saying don't put in the work. But Paul knows at the end of the day, you do not illuminate your own mind. You do not open up your own heart. God has to do that. So here's where the resurrection comes in. Does God have the ability to do such a thing? I can be pretty stubborn hearted sometimes. Don't test my stubborn heart. And I can be pretty dull sometimes. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. I can be pretty dull sometimes. Does God have the power to open up this stubborn heart? Does he have the power to illuminate this dull mind? And Paul's answer to that is yes. And how do we know that? He had the power to raise Jesus from the dead. If he can raise Jesus physically from the dead, he can raise your soul from spiritual slumber. He can open up your mind if he can open up life to the dead. Paul is telling us that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we would have no ability nor reason to know of God. You wouldn't be able to do it, and you wouldn't have a reason to do it. But because Jesus lives, therefore, know God more and more. And can I just say before we move on to our last point, this is a really important message for Easter. Not just because it's about the resurrection. These two applications, needing to join a church and learn more of God, is really important at Easter time because of CEOs. And I don't mean chief executive officers. 
And the Christian church, although this maybe isn't such a nice thing to do, but growing up in the Christian church, there was sort of a joke that Christians would make about certain people. They would call them CEOs. And CEO stands for Christmas and Easter only. CEOs are people who don the door of a church twice a year. On Easter and on Christmas. Those are CEOs. Now let me say, I, I don't know every single person in this room super well. So if you're a CEO, let me please just tell you, I am not, I'm not trying to mock you. Sincerely, I am grateful that you're here. Sincerely. And, and I hope you feel welcome and loved by this church. Sincerely. But if you are a CEO, can I just gently talk to you specifically for a moment? Can I just gently remind you that Jesus rose from the dead, therefore you shouldn't be a CEO. Because the risen Christ who loves you so dearly has risen, he does not desire that you would only seek to know him twice a year. His desire is that you would become a member of his body. And that you would seek to know him not just every week with this church, but even every day. Jesus rose from the dead, so he wants you to join the church and always be growing in your knowledge of him. In other words, why should someone not just go to church on holidays? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He wants you in church every week. He wants you with the church throughout the week. He wants you to grow more and more in your knowledge of him. But let's move on to our last application of the resurrection. Application number three, you need to live with hope. Jesus rose, therefore join the church. Jesus rose, therefore grow in your knowledge of him. Jesus rose, therefore live with hope. And I mean hope in two different ways. Both hope for the future, but hope for today. You, in Christ, you've got hope for the future, and you've got hope for the today. Let's begin with hope for the future. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, specifically what? What does Paul want specifically our, our, our hearts to be enlightened to? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Okay, what is this hopeful thing he's called us to? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We've been talking about this inheritance for two weeks now. And we've established that it's our future resurrected, resurrected heaven. There is a glory awaiting us in Christ. There is an inheritance awaiting us when we will be resurrected from the dead and we will live with Christ forever. It's glorious. Paul says in another letter, it's so good, it's beyond your ability to imagine it. That's what he says. There is an unimaginable glory awaiting for us. And Paul says that that can be yours today because Jesus rose from the dead. So you can live your whole life with this eternal perspective. No matter what happens to me today, I've got heaven waiting for me. I've got a resurrection waiting for me. I, you will go through no problems today that a good resurrection can't fix. That's not my quote, by the way. We have the hope of the future inheritance. Christ rose from the dead, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that means you're going to rise from the dead. You've got a resurrection coming. You've got heaven coming. Doesn't that give you hope for today? You've got this hope in the future. But the good news is Paul doesn't say that our hope is purely future. It's purely eternal. Paul says that you can have hope now. Not, not just that you can have it now, but you can have hope about now. You can have hope in the midst of your circumstances. Why? Look at verse 19. 
Paul also wants us to have our hearts enlightened to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul puts this in the past tense, implications in the present tense. In other words, the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is already in you. It's already at work in you. And if you don't believe that, just remember that the Bible teaches you cannot come to faith but by a miraculous work of God. You've already experienced the power of God in your life if you've been spiritually resurrected from the dead. He's already resurrected you once. The power of God is already at work in us. We're already receiving it. So why should you embrace every day with hope and confidence? You wake up in the morning, you rub your eyes, you breathe your breath, you put your feet on the ground. You should have hope and confidence for the day. Why? Because you are being guided and protected by the power of God which is in you. Now this does not mean bad things won't happen. Ask Jesus whether bad things can still happen to faithful people. I'm not saying bad things won't happen for you. But what I am saying is that no matter what happens to you comes from God. God has prepared you for it. He's using it for your good. And he has the power to see you through it. So I'm not saying bad things won't happen. I'm saying you've got a power to embrace them and get through them. You can live with hope for the future and hope for right now. Why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. So in conclusion, you should believe in Jesus and become part of his church. Why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him supremacy. You should, as a believer, join yourself to a local church. Why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him supremacy. You should grow in your knowledge of God, studying his word, wherein God will illuminate your mind about himself. Why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him supremacy. You should live every day with the hope that God is working in you and will bring you safely to his heavenly kingdom. Why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him supremacy. Come to Christ, join a church, grow in knowledge, and live with hope. And you can do all of these things because God raised Jesus from the dead. He is risen.